The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So here we are in our, our series entitled Journey, and we're in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're going to carry on our series, if you'd like to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out this spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's come before God in prayer. So Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this passage of scripture, for the strange goings on there. Father, we thank you for this encounter this uh, boy's father had with, with your son. Father, we pray that we would encounter you this morning that you would speak your word into our lives and make us look like Jesus. We pray these things in his name and to your glory. Amen. So the, the disciples, they, they, they can't cast out this demon, uh, and so a, a dispute breaks out between Jesus' disciples and these uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law and the scribes, and they were always skeptics. They were always the skeptics. And, and so they, uh, there's this dispute that breaks out between them, and eventually this crowd kind of comes around the dispute. You know how that happens, and they want to see what's going on, what the argument's about. Uh, eventually someone tells Jesus what's going on, and he responds, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Um, Then they bring the boy to Jesus, and he says, All things are possible for those who believe. And the boy's father exclaims, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. All things are possible for those who believe. Oh, unbelieving generation. A friend of mine who, who is not a believer uh, has been dragged to church over the years by different friends and, and, and family, and uh, he, he never in, in really enjoyed it. Um, some, some of you may be here this morning, uh, dragged by friends and family, so you're, you're here under, under duress. Uh, I, I think I've said before, and I'll, but I, I'll say it again because it's true, my heart goes out to you, that's you this morning, because I, I think we all, we all know what it's like to get dragged along to something we don't really want to be in, involved with, right? Um, but, but I also appreciate the fact that you, you love your friends and your family enough to do that for them. That, that's, that's significant. 
So this friend of mine, who I'm sure some of you can relate to, was dragged along to church by different friends and family over the years. He'd never enjoyed it. Uh, but when he was there on Sunday mornings, he, w- he would see people worshipping. And, and some of them would have their hands raised up like this and their eyes closed, which is, actually, I do that sometimes when I'm worshipping. Like, and, and so th- th- he saw a lot of them, uh, a genuine emotion. There, there was a genuine depth of feeling, a lot of emotion. And, and so that's what he saw when he looked around. And when he looked at himself, he saw... Well, nothing. He wasn't feeling anything. He wasn't feeling it. He looked around, he saw all this feeling and a depth of emotion, and he thought, well, that must be what it means to have faith. That must be what it means to to truly believe. And if I don't feel that kind of thing, then obviously I can't believe. He also had a lot of questions, questions about faith in science, questions about faith in history, questions about faith in philosophy, questions about faith in politics. He had lots of questions. The trouble is, a lot of the time, these questions were just kind of dismissed as unimportant. Well, don't worry about that stuff. It kind of stepped aside. Uh, a lot of the times, that, that's what would happen. Sometimes, he was even told, uh, you're, stop asking those questions. You're asking the, the wrong questions, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means, but you're asking the wrong questions. Stop asking those questions. Uh, you're letting your intellect get in the way of faith. What you need to do is take your doubts and your questions and just sweep them aside, and you just need to believe. Just believe. So look at his predicament. On the one hand, he'd come to church, and he'd see this strong emotion and feeling, but as an unbeliever, he wasn't feeling it. On the other hand, as an unbeliever, he had a lot of questions, but the believers weren't hearing it. And in that predicament, he said that he he used to think that if there was a God, and back then it was a very big if, it isn't now, but back then it was a very big if, he thought if there was a God, then obviously God doesn't want anything to do with me. Man, I I made me feel very uncomfortable just hearing him articulate it that way. really did. And the first thing I wanted him to know I had this conversation just a few months ago. The first thing I wanted him to know, and the first thing I want you to know here this morning, if you're here as an unbeliever, is this. Is that when, when Jesus, when we read passages like this, and Jesus says stuff like, oh, unbelieving generation, he's not saying, oh, generation which can't psych itself up to an emotional pitch which we call faith and belief. That's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says anything is possible for those who believe, he's not saying it's anything's possible for those who can sweep aside the evidence that's in front of them, uh, ignore their doubts and, and, and questions, and just believe. That's not what Jesus is saying. When the Father responds to Jesus, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief, he's not saying, well, yeah, I've got some pretty strong feelings and emotions about this. I'm pretty psyched, but I'm not psyched up enough. So if you could just psych me up to that pitch called faith and belief, then, then that would be much appreciated. That's not what this conversation is about. Some people hear that, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is not inviting anyone here this morning to believe in spite of the evidence. He's just not, or as uh, Richard Dawkins put it, uh, he puts it this way. Richard Dawkins is a a kind of well-known, very vocal atheist of our time. He's a biologist who works out of Oxford, and he says this. He says, faith is believing not just in spite of the lack of evidence, but in the jaws of the evidence. Faith is believing not just in spite of the lack of evidence, but in the jaws of the evidence. He's got a way with words. I think he can, he can coin a phrase. Um, he is a brilliant biologist, but as I've pointed out before, uh, he's just not a very good philosopher. Uh, and, and that's not just my opinion. That's the opinion of many of his colleagues at Oxford who actually are philosophers and are also atheists. And sometimes they wish that Richard Dawkins would shut up because he's making them look bad. They're, they're kind of embarrassed by him. They're like, man, I wish he, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. 
the point here is, is that Jesus is not inviting anyone to do what Richard Dawkins thinks he's inviting them to do. He's just not. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? How long must I be with you? In other words, uh, look, I've been with you for some time now. Uh, you've seen my life. You've heard my teaching. You've heard my answers to your questions. You've seen the miracles. We've been engaging on these things over and over again. Uh, how long must I be with you? He's saying the evidence is before you. It's been in front of you for quite some time now. You don't have to work yourself up, psych yourself up to an emotional pitch, which we call faith or belief. That's, that's not what faith or belief is about anyway. It's not. All you have to do is consider the evidence that's been put in front of you and think rightly about it, think clearly about it, and respond appropriately. You've had ample evidence and ample time to assess the evidence. That's part of what it means to say, how long must I be with you? How long must I be with you? That's part of what that, that means. Not only is Jesus offering evidence, but he is also offering evidence that was a pro... And this is important. He's offering evidence that was appropriate to their culture. Offering evidence that was appropriate to their situation, to their context. So so when Jesus says, he says, oh, unbelieving generation. Generation. When you talk about a generation, you're talking about a specific culture. Every generation has its own culture. Every generation has its own concerns and questions. Every generation has its own hopes and ambitions. Every generation has its own set of fears and anxieties and angst and, and, and insecurities. So when you talk about a generation, you're talking about a specific culture. And and Jesus' teaching, his miracles, his answers to their questions, his engagement with them spoke to that culture. It spoke to their situation, to their context. In some sense, their culture should have been poised for this, to receive this kind of evidence. In some sense, their, their narrative world should have naturally led them to belief in Jesus when they saw this kind of evidence. Uh, in, in a sense, their, their worldview should have actually, actually furnished them with everything they needed to see what Jesus was doing, to recognize it, to get it and understand For For those of you who are not philosophically inclined, I'm going to give you... 15 seconds to tune out, okay? Uh, I'm going to give you permission to tune out, and then you've got to tune back in, okay? So, so you've got 15 seconds starting from now, okay? For the rest of you, okay? So, so I'm not a hopeless modernist. I just want you to know I'm not a hopeless modernist who thinks that any old evidence will do. I understand the postmodern critique, which says that all of our knowledge is culturally conditioned in some way. So there has to be some sort of contextualization. We can't just offer any evidence. The evidence has to be appropriate for the context, for the culture. I get that. Okay, for those of you tuned out, your 15 seconds is up. Okay, you back with me? Okay. So, so the point is, Jesus is offering evidence, but not just any old evidence. He's offering evidence that is appropriate to the culture. He's offering evidence that is appropriate to that context. You know, when, when my, my unbelieving friend who I mentioned earlier, when, when, he, when he realized that that was the case, when he realized that Jesus is not inviting anyone to psych themselves up to an emotional pitch where, so they can ignore all their doubts and questions and just believe, when he realized that, he, he said, I am so relieved. He said, I'm, I'm so relieved to hear that. I always thought that perhaps there was something wrong with me. Just hear the vocabulary he's using. I thought perhaps there was something wrong with me. I thought perhaps that if, if there is a God, he obviously doesn't want anything to do with me. You know, you know part, of the, part of the problem, I think, is that as the church, as, as Christians, sometimes we read passages like this and we, we very quickly jump to Jesus' side and, and, and quite readily we start to parrot his words. 
Right? We, we parrot his words. And, and I think we all know that there, there's things in Scripture, the things that Jesus says, it's some of the things we can't repeat, right? Because, of course, he's talking about himself, his deity, his sonship, his divinity. Uh, we're not going to go out and repeat those things. We, we know that instinctively. But, but sometimes there's other things which, which we we're very readily parrot, uh, but I'm not sure that we should just, just yet. I think this is one of those occasions. You see, you see Jesus, uh, Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? Sometimes I think we look around at our generation and we kind of quickly say, Oh, yes, our generation, there's increasing uh, uh, unbelief is on the rise. Uh, there's increasing godlessness. There's increasing secularization of America. Haven't, haven't you noticed this? Yes, unbelieving generation. Oh, unbelieving culture. We repeat those words. You, you are... You're, your questions are an excuse. Your, your doubts are a smokescreen. Your unbelief is just sinful rebellion. You just, you just, you've had all the answers. You just don't want to know. You just don't want to... You, oh, unbelieving generation. Very quickly, we, we, we parrot that. And, and I'm not saying that there aren't people like that. Right? I think we've all, we've all had those conversations with, with people about, not just about faith, but about all sorts of things. You know, where, where you, they ask you a question, you start to answer and then halfway through you realize they're not really interested in the answer, right? You had that? And, and uh, actually they're just thinking about the next question they're going to ask you, and they're not, they're not really engaging on the very question they raised, right? It's not a discussion. It's not a conversation. Of course, there's always people like that about all sorts of things. But, but I think what happens is we jump there too quickly. If we want to be able to say, oh, unbelieve, look at our culture and say, oh, unbelieving generation, we need to be able to follow up with how long have I been, must I be with you? We need to be with our generation. We need to be with our culture. You know, uh, Jesus was with his culture. That's, and and what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he was just there, present, physically. It doesn't mean he wasn't just a warm body, right? Jesus knew their thoughts before they spoke them. He, he knew their questions before they articulated them, before they asked them. He knew what his culture's greatest fears and anxieties and insecurities were. He knew what his culture's hopes and ambitions were. He knew what their greatest questions and concerns were. In fact, here's, here's the thing. He could articulate those things better than they could, better than the rest of his culture. He could articulate those things better than they could. Can we articulate our own culture's hopes and ambitions better than the rest of the culture? Can we articulate our own culture's fears and angst and insecurities better than our own culture? Can we articulate the questions, the greatest questions and concerns of our own culture better than the rest of our culture? Can we do that? But, because I, I really believe that the church should be the place where these things are articulated the most clearly. Where, where they are given the clearest, the, 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 with the greatest clarity, that they're articulated with, where they're in such a way that they come, they're crystallized here, where they come into sharpest focus. I really believe the church would be the place for that to happen, so that we can say to our culture, we are with you. Jesus could do that for his culture. You know why? Because when God came to be with us, right? How long must I be with you? When God came to be with us, Emmanuel, one of Christ's titles, you know what that means, right? Emmanuel, God with us. When God came to be with us, he didn't just put on a human suit and zip it up. Some people think this is what the incarnation was. God put on a human suit, zipped it up, like, like he was an alien out of Men in Black, right? You've seen that, you've seen that movie, right? And he, and he kind of looked out at the world, at humanity, like, like this, in this very kind of detached, detached manner, this dis distant way. That, that's, that's not what the incarnation is about. That's nothing human about that. When God 
came to be with us, he became a man. He became a human. He, he was in a particular place at a particular time in a particular culture. He immersed himself in their world. He embedded himself in their culture. That's, that's what God did. So he could say to them, I am with you. I have been with you. How much longer must I be with you? How are we doing at this? How are we doing at this? I, I was talking to a friend uh, just uh, recently who, who has just recently graduated a couple of months ago from MIT. And uh, I remember going up to visit him on his very first semester there. And you know how that is. He wasn't sure that this was the place for him and, and all of that. He had some questions. Um, but, but, you know, four years later, I think he, he, he enjoyed the experience. He's just recently got himself... Uh, certainly paid off. He's got himself a, a job out in uh, San Francisco working for, for Google. And, and so I, I kind of teased him. I said, ah, so you're going to go and work for the man? He goes, yeah, but he's the coolest man ever. So, <laughs> and and uh, he's, he's, a, he's a very bright guy. Nothing like his dad. I say that because his dad's around here this morning. Uh, he, nothing like a real, real bright guy. And, uh, and so I wanted to know, what was it like being on a campus like MIT, which this year actually ranks number one on the university global rankings? It's number one this year, switched out with Cambridge. So I wanted to know, what was it like being a believer, a Christian on a campus like that? More than that, I wanted to know who was engaging the students with the gospel. How were the students being engaged with the truth of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his, the, the, the fact of his lordship, his kingship? How were the students being engaged with the gospel? turns out that his greatest concern uh, over the ministries that were taking place on campus, which he saw shrink, which he saw shrink just in the four years that were there, was that he said that the people who were doing ministry, they didn't seem that interested in their questions, the questions he had or the questions that his, his unbelieving friends had, that they weren't all that interested in engaging on those topics. They were, they were kind of belittled those topics and said, well, that's, we're, we're, you're fo- we're focused on this, so if you want to come join us, we're focused on this, we're not worried about that. And he described it this way. He said, you know, it's a strange way to try to talk to someone by avoiding talking about what they want to talk about. (laughs) I thought that's quite a good way of putting it. It's a strange way to try to talk to someone by avoiding talking about what they want to talk about. If, If we're going to be able to say to a culture, we are with you, I've been with you, how long must I be with you? If we're going to be able to say that, we need to engage our culture. And if we're going to be able to engage our culture, we need to be able to... Get, get used to having those conversations and we're going to have to get good at having those conversations which make us feel uncomfortable. The kind of conversations where we entertain questions which we ever, never even thought to ask. We're going to have to get good at having those conversations about things which we thought were non-debatable, that they were closed topics, that they were unquestionable, so, sorted, done and finished with. No, we're going to have to get good at having those kinds of conversations. Now, I'm not saying that all of us are going to have uh, you know, all the answers all of the time for these people. Of course we're not. No one's going to have that kind of expertise. Okay? There'll be different levels of expertise. Okay? And, and some of you are going to be way better at this than I'll ever be. I know, I know some of you here this morning who, who, who are just going to be great at this. I, I, I know this. But it's not about having all the right answers. Or, I mean, nice to have some answers, but not right to have all the right, it's not about having all the right answers. It's, it's about saying, look, I'm taking your question seriously because I take you seriously. It's about communicating to our culture, to this generation, saying, look, uh, it's not about having all the right answers. It's about saying, look, I'm going I'm to treat you with dignity and I'm going to treat you with respect. You see, this is not just some cold intellectual exercise. Okay? This, when you try to understand the other, the other being that which is different from you, the other person who's different, when you try to understand the other, what you're, what you're doing, that's an act of love and it's an act of compassion. It's an act of love and compassion. 
It's not a cold intellect. I wish we could just stop separating out love and compassion from the intellect. As, as if those two things didn't go together. Now, let me tell you something. If, if you think you're, you're a very loving, compassionate person, but you ignore the intellectual life, let me tell you, you're not as loving and compassionate as you think you are. And, and, and if you're all about the intellect and you, you think you're all that, but there's no love and compassion, but you think you're all that intellectually, let me tell you something. You're not as smart as you think you are. <laughs> okay, love and compassion, intellect, those things, those things go together. This is why I'm always surprised when people ask me, and I've been asked on so many occasions, you know, what... <laughs> Stephen, you're just complicating stuff. Man, what are you doing? You're worrying about all these questions of philosophy, about contextualization, questions about culture, all these questions. What are you worried about? What we need is a simple, straightforward gospel presentation. We just need simple, straightforward faith. And then the issue is challenged, and I've heard various versions of it, but it goes like this. Look, if you really think that if you were an eight-year-old boy herding goats in the bush somewhere, I don't know, Ethiopia, do you really think that that Ethiopian boy herding goats in the bush is really thinking about any of this stuff, these questions? The answer is, of course not. No, they're not, they're not thinking about those questions. I'll tell you what, though, they've got a whole set of other questions which I'm pretty sure you won't be thinking about either. Let me point out the obvious. Let me point out the obvious. You are not an Ethiopian boy herding goats in the bush somewhere in Ethiopia. Yeah? Are you with me on this? So you're just not. You're living in Temple, Texas. It's 2014, and you're an hour north of Austin, which means you're an hour north of UT. And again, let me just describe the obvious for you. It means that there are ideas and there were questions which we thought were, were going to remain on campus, which we thought were going to, to remain trapped in that ivory tower, but, but they have the nasty habit of escaping, because you know why? Because people graduate, right? Sometimes, right? They, they graduate. And, and so these ideas migrate an hour north and settle down in Temple, Texas, and suddenly these ideas and questions are taking up residency right here in our town. You see how that works? So, so it's, it's not about... It's, it's not, it's not a, 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 you know, well, maybe, maybe. This is it's a question of are we going to engage our culture? It's happening around us. Are we going to engage it? And are we going to be able to say to them, we are with you? Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in his blessings. He counted it a blessing. He does it for the sake of the gospel, to win some, and he counts it a blessing and a privilege and an honor to be able to do it. And so I suppose you could add to that list, uh, to the goat herder, I became a goat herder, and to the UT grad, I became a UT grad. And I know that that is blasphemy for some of you, but you know, you, you know what I mean, right? To the Aggie, I became an Aggie. I've, I've got in my notes here, pause for whoop. So, so that's, uh, that's contextualization. You see, see what I did there, right? Don't tell me that that's, a, that's a, a cold intellectual exercise. This is a loving, compassionate thing to do. And Paul could say to each one of those cultures, I am with you. He could say it to every one of those cultures, I am with you. I've been with you. How much longer must I be with you? 
This, this is what made Hudson Taylor such a success in, in his mission. Uh, this is Hudson Taylor. He, is, uh, he, he was a, a, a missionary out of Britain in the 1800s, and he wanted to reach China with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, the trouble is, at that time, the vast majority of Christians were, were actually um, you know, exporting the gospel, but as they did that, the, the vast majority of missionaries took their, their British and Western culture along with the gospel, and so they exported their Western values, their Western ideals, their, their Western culture, their Western uh, answers to a set of Western questions, their Western empire, the Western politics. They imported all that and imposed it on those cultures they were trying to reach. And, and so uh, Hudson Taylor, he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. And he does something odd. He, he throws himself into their world. He immerses himself in their world. He embeds himself in their culture. And, and actually, there, there is a, a revival going on in China. has been for decades now. Uh, there are millions of Chinese Christians now. The fastest growing church in the world is in China. And so much of it can be traced back to the work of this guy and his friends who, who did that. Now, you've got to understand how odd it was. Because people laughed at him. <laughs> they mocked him. He was mocked. He and his colleagues were mocked for doing what they were doing. That, that's, that's how odd it was, because the vast majority, that's what, but that's what made him a luminary in his generation, transformed the way we do missions for mo- most of us. Um, and it wasn't just that he ate their food and wore their clothes, so he's wearing some of their clothes there now, but it's not just that he ate their food and wore their clothes, it's so much more than that, right? Because if that's all he did, right, then, then that, would, that would be like God putting on a human suit, zipping up and, and looking out at the world like a, some sort of alien, right? Through, through the, that, that would be like that. Right? You, if that's all he did, then that would be like Paul saying, I've become all things to all men, as in I've become a Greek to the Greeks, which just means I enjoy a Greek salad every now and then, and the dolmas are delicious, you should try them. But that's, that's kind of play acting, right? You know, you know what I mean? That's, just, that's, a, that's a bit of a play, play acting. No, he threw himself into their world. He embedded himself in their culture so that like Jesus, like Paul, he could say, I am with you, I have been with you, how much longer must I be with you? Tim Keller is a uh, pastor of a, a church in New York, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, many of you have read his books and enjoyed his ministry. He, he's a, uh, he, he, I think, is, is like a, a modern-day um, Hudson Taylor, or modern-day Paul. What he's done is he's immersed himself into a very different culture where everyone said it couldn't be done. They're very secular. You can't reach those Manhattanites. They're godless. They're secular. They're very skeptical. They're cynical. You, you just can't reach those people. And, and actually what he's done is he's planted a church, and, and there are thousands of Christians now uh, meeting at that church and several church plants and, and well, lots of church plants. It is very exciting ministry. Well, well, this is what Tim Keller, this is how he describes his, his experience and, the, and his colleagues' experience. He says it's like this. He says, early on we discovered that it was not enough for Christians to feel pity or even just affection for the city. Staff and leaders had to humbly learn from and respect the culture and its people. Our relationship with the secular, driven, bright, restless people of the city had to be, consciously, had to be a consciously reciprocal one. I, I like that, that phrase. He explains it in a moment, but a consciously reciprocal one. We had to see God's common grace in them. We had to learn that we needed them to fill out our own understanding of God and his grace, just as they needed us for the same. We had to be energized and rich by the city, not just drained by it. Even Jesus so united his heart with the people he ministered to that he could say, I have been with you. I have been with you. 
man, you know what's going to happen if we do this? If we do this Tim Keller style or Hudson Taylor style or the Apostle Paul style or the way that Jesus did it? You know, you know what's going to happen if we do that? If we start to engage with these with our culture this way, we're going to realize that actually some of their questions are not just an excuse. They're not just a smokescreen. Some of them are genuine questions, and some of them are just brilliant questions. They, they really are. They're, they're brilliant questions. They're worth thinking about. And you know what's going to happen is you engage with the culture this way, we're going to find that our faith is going to grow in ways that we never even thought possible, in ways that we never even began to imagine, which we never even thought about. That's what's going to happen. It's going to happen that way. And here's why. You know, we've already said that the journey to faith, the journey to belief, to start following Jesus is not a journey of sweeping aside your doubts and questions, sweeping them under the rug and pretending they don't exist. We've already said that. But the journey of faith is, is also not the absence of those questions and, and having them all tied up with a nice bow on the box and handed, and suddenly they're all resolved. That, that's just not the way it works. There's not an artificial wall or curtain that cordons off the believer from the unbeliever as if questions and doubts were the domain of the unbeliever and unbelief. And now that you're a, a believer, suddenly all these questions and doubts have disappeared appeared and banished and they're they're swept away and and, and they're all resolved. It just doesn't work like that. In fact, I'm I'm very suspicious of the Christian who says, "I, I never struggle with this stuff. I'm suspicious of the faith that says, I have never doubted for a day in my life, really. Because one of the signs of a vibrant, growing, vital, living faith is that it will wrestle with these kinds of doubts and questions. That it will wrestle in this kind of way. And if there is no wrestling like this going on, if, there is, if your faith is never exercised in this way, then it cannot and it will not grow. Just the other night at our small group, and I, I think I've uh, shared before how much I, on a Tuesday night, I, I, love, our, I love our small group. And uh, there was a, one of the, our friends there was talking about her boyfriend and was saying that, that he's, he's been brought up in the church, he's, he's been a believer, but he's now got some big questions that he wants answers to. He's, he's got some, uh, some doubts he, he's wrestling with, right? Um, but the trouble is he, he doesn't want to bring it up with his parents and he doesn't feel comfortable bringing it up with church folk, with Christians at his church. And I've got to tell you, that kind of thing just drives me nuts. You want to know what drives That drives me nuts. Because the church should be the first place that a believer, not just an unbeliever, but a believer should come and say, yeah, I'm going to wrestle with these questions and with these doubts. This is the safest place, the best place, the sharpest place where things will be brought into clarity. This is the best place for me to wrestle with this and thrash this stuff out. It should be the first thing that comes to mind. But there's a reason why it isn't for this young man. And I don't think that it's entirely his fault. When we were looking at this passage on Wednesday, um, the staff meeting, uh, every, every Wednesday, as you know, we, we get together as a staff, and one of the things we do in there uh, is that we, we study the passage that we're going to preach on. Whoever's preaching, we study the passage that we're going to preach on that, that coming Sunday. And so we were, we were looking at this passage, and one of the things that all of us as a staff appreciated about this, this guy here, this, this man, this father of this boy who comes to Jesus, is his honesty. It's his honesty. He's so honest, isn't he? Because he comes to Jesus and he says, he says, Lord, I do believe. Well, that's a great affirmation of faith, right? I believe. I do believe. But then he follows it right up with, uh, help my unbelief. Lord, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't put his game face on. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't put on an act. He doesn't fake it. He doesn't feel the need to do that with Jesus, which I think is beautiful. He doesn't feel the need to do that with Jesus. And I think 
one of the things I, we appreciated about his honesty is not just his honesty, but the fact that in his honesty, he voices the situation for so many of us, right? If, if we're honest. You need to know this about Temple Bible Church. You need to know this about, about the leadership here, about the, the, the pastors, the, the elders, the staff, the, the, the many others in leadership here at TBC. You need to know that we are consciously, on purpose, working very hard at making sure that this is the kind of church where, where this kind of thing can go on. Where, where you don't have your standing with God questioned because you've got a few questions. We're, we want it to be the kind of place where this kind of radical honesty, the kind of honesty that, that this man displays right here, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief, where that kind of honesty can be freely expressed. That is our honest, genuine desire for this church. Really, we, we hope that it will be that place for believer and unbeliever alike. That, that's, we hope that it will be that place. We're working at it. And some of you are a little uncomfortable with that, and you're like, oh, wait, this is going to create a bunch of very unstable, vacillating people. No, you're wrong. It won't. <laughs> it won't. What it's going to do is going to produce Christians who wrestle with, allow their faith to wrestle with this kind of thing. It's going to produce some very serious followers of Jesus Christ who are going to act with a kind of confidence that we've never seen the like of. That's what it's going to produce. That's where this goes. Well, I just want to close with this, this one, one observation, and, and I know that, uh, man, I had, I had like three times the amount of material, literally, three times the amount of material. Uh, you, so you just got to pick where you're going to go, right? And, and, and so uh, th- this, is, this is one final observation that I, that I want to make here. Um, I, I know that there are some who will think, well, then in that case, and I'm going to avoid all this doubt and uncertainty stuff, um, and I'm just going to be an atheist, right? Because, because then I, don't, I, can, I want to deal in the currency of certainty, uh, and so I'm going to avoid all the vagaries of belief and faith and all of that. Uh, I've heard this expressed in numerous different ways, and I, I'm not entirely sure where to begin to address a topic like that in, in, in a sermon on a Sunday morning. But uh, I'll just have to content myself with telling you one more story. Um, and uh, and uh, it's just a suggestion, uh, something for you to, to consider. This is... This is Bertrand Russell. Uh, Bertrand Russell died at age 98. And although he had ceased to write philosophy 10 years earlier, he had already enjoyed an unusually long philosophical career, during which he authored 60 books and 2,000 published articles. The enduring iconic status of Bertrand Russell as intellectual atheist is merited both by the unusual diversity of his work and by the reach and influence of his work on others. So you have this picture of this philosopher who's an atheist, who's had a prolific career, written lots, influenced countless people. I mean, he's influenced a lot of people. Um, The interesting thing about Russell is that he had set out at the beginning of his career looking for certainty. And this was a theme throughout his career. He was looking for certainty. As an atheist, that's the currency he wanted to trade in. He didn't want to deal with belief and faith and the vagaries of that. But having scaled the wall of certainty at numerous times in his career, um, only to find the ladder kicked out from under him, Russell closes his last major philosophical work with these forlorn words. He says, All human knowledge is uncertain, inexact, and partial. To this doctrine, we have not found any limitation whatever. All human knowledge is uncertain, inexact, impartial. To this doctrine, we have not found any limitation whatever. In other words, this is a man who spent his entire career professionally, his career looking for certainty, and it ends up in vagueness. 
and uncertainty. Now, I just tell you this story because I want to save you a bit of time, right? Okay? We can save a bit of time here. The, the kind of certainty that you may be looking for, the kind that can do without all this faith and belief stuff, doesn't actually exist. It doesn't exist. He's not the only guy who's, who's pursued this. It doesn't exist. The best that any of us can do, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or agnostic or a Buddhist or whatever, the best that any of us can do is accumulate the evidence. Accumulate the evidence. Determine which way the evidence is pointing us. Or as C.S. Lewis says, look, where is the weight of the evidence? Where does the weight of the evidence lie? And in, under the weight of the evidence, in the light of the evidence, believe. Well, believe what you will, but you're going to believe something. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just first of all want to, want to thank you for, for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, being fully human, immersing yourself in our humanity, in human culture. Thank you that you were truly with us. Father, thank you for those who have reflected deeply on the Incarnation. Men like the Apostle Paul, men like Hudson Taylor, men like Tim Keller who have immersed themselves in their generation, who love them enough, who are compassionate enough to do that. Father, may we follow that example and do that for our culture, our generation right here in Temple, Texas, right now in 2014. Father, I also pray for my friends here who are maybe unbelievers or they're believers, but they need help with their unbelief. Father, I pray that this would be the place where they can wrestle with those questions openly, honestly, and they work hard at that right here amongst us at TBC. Father, I pray that you would give them clarity, give them community to do that in, people to do that with. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.